0: You're listening to the Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads lead us to understand men in power? I'm Larry Davidson, Into the Light, Out of the Darkness. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, first, we start with a conversation with Boston Globe's Mark Arsenault about his book amazing the imposter's war. After the break from Newsday, investigative reporter S.J. Petty joins the conversation to talk about her new book, Sunny, about a major crime fixture that resided on <coughs> Long Island. Mark has covered national politics, gambling, and worked on spotlight team investigations as a staff reporter for the Boston Globe And let's start with a kind of an interesting question, if you don't mind. For me, my takeaway in terms of a summary, it's all about connecting the dots from one person to another person to major events of the day. Would you agree or disagree with that?
2: I would agree with that. I would think that um – in putting this book together, uh, it is the biography of a New England journalist by the name of John Ratham, who was in his day one of the most powerful editors and journalists in the country. And I think my job was to connect his life and his influence to uh, the events of the day, which included the propaganda wars that were going on right. uh, in the media, uh, as well as you know, espionage, sabotage, and and the things that the warring nations in Europe in World War One were doing to try to influence the
1: American public. In terms of the man you, you write about, and I spoke to you briefly before we started recording the podcast, a lot of names here I recognize. I, I'm a fan of history and a lot of events of the day. I didn't know anything about him. And the one thing about America is land of opportunity and you can reinvent yourself. Is that true about Ratham? He reinvented
2: himself multiple times, right? Um, he was a native Australian and that was the only part of his biography that he told at the time that was in fact true. He invented an entire, invented a new name. John Ratham is not his real name, invented a new name. He invented a new background, a new biography. He gave himself all kinds of adventures and swashbuckling encounters that in fact never happened to create a character. And he was a remarkable actor, and he stepped into that character and played the character of journalist John Ratham with uh, with a lot of pizzazz for the
1: rest of his life. I'm going to go to the end of the book. And I once did an op-ed piece for Newsday about the future of local radio on Long Island. And the editor said to me, you buried the lead, which I think you're familiar with as a journalist. Yeah. It's at the back of the book, in a sense, about Ratham's True identity. Did you bury the lead? I,
2: yes, yes, I did. Um, in one sense, I did. Um, I thought that, um, that people would be tickled to come upon Rayton's identity at the end of the book, his true identity, as you would come upon the, uh, the end of a mystery novel. Right, the suspense that I'm trying to create throughout the book, uh, narrative nonfiction, uh, to set up the fact that he is an imposter. He's, he's taking all these chances. He's become this famous person, but yet he's really stuck his chin out there and he's got this tremendous secret, which is that he's an actor playing a role right. uh, and his true identity is, has been hidden. I, I thought, I bury the lead, yes in the sense that um the his true identity does once you know it i think it does open some doors about some of his behaviors but on the other hand i thought it would be a fun treat to save for people who who got to the end of the book
1: so we talked about the main title of your book called the imposter's war the full title is a subtitle the press propaganda and the newsman who battled for the minds of america um That resonates today. We have newspapers and people in the media that I think is a truism battling for the minds of America. So kind of break down the title for us.
2: Sure. Uh, Well, the imposters' War. I mean, uh, you know, Ratham was an imposter and he fought a battle to try to get America into World War One on the side of Great Britain and France. So uh, that's where that came from. The other part of it, it, it really is about the propaganda wars. Now, that the war, World War I started in 1914. By the spring of 1915, Ratham was engaged in, as the editor of the Providence Journal at the time in Rhode Island, he was engaged in uh, uh, gathering material for scoops that made Germany look bad in the eyes of America. And the goal of that was to try to wear down America's natural resistance to go into war. I mean, Europe was fighting another war. Europe fought wars all the time. People didn't know in the beginning this one was going to be so so much different than the ones in the past, so much bigger and more consequential. Uh, but most of America didn't see the point of risking their sons in a European war. You know, Raytham saw the German Empire as uh, a mortal threat to America and he set out to try to use his newspaper and his influence to change america's mind so america could see germany in the same light and again he was with a small newspaper but a lot of his scoops were powerful enough that they were reprinted in newspapers all across the country the new york times used to reprint his stories on the same day they ran in the province journal so it was a simultaneous publication in the times and other papers so he his stuff was rolling off printing presses in pretty much every major city in America uh, for the two years before the U.S. entered the war, so 1915, 16, to 1917.
1: This is the pod- mm-hmm. podcast off of Periscope. We're talking with Mark Locke from the Boston Globe about his new book, The Impostors of War. And I, in a previous episode, we did something. We talked about Ernest Hemingway's last wife. And one thing that Hemingway did when he covered World War II he embellished his reporting because he was a writer at heart. He was a writer, but he embellished a lot of the facts. I think that runs a thread through your book about Raytham. He embellished or created a lot of stories, making him look really important. And he was important in his day, but he ultimately got in trouble for creating events that he wasn't there or he heightened his, his participation. Yeah, very much so.
2: You remember, he was, again, an actor. His entire identity was a lie. So it wasn't that big of a jump for someone who's lying every day to then lie a little bit more. And in the beginning, he lied about his sources. Uh, he got a lot of material from the British government, from British spies, from domestic spies, from the agency we now call the FBI. Um, he had a lot of sources in government. So he had legitimate sources and created some legitimate journalism. After the U.S. got into the war in 1917, he essentially took a victory lap um, through the lecture circuit, giving speeches in major cities all over America and in Canada. And in those speeches, he claimed completely incorrectly that he had gotten all this material, all that his reporters were the ones who were acting as the spies that he was the one controlling this giant counter spy operation that reached coast to coast in the United States. Now, people really did do these things, but not John Raythe. So he, you know, in a really personal way, plagiarized for himself the daring activities of other people. And in doing so, he made, made himself even more famous. He, this, these claims rocketed him. People believed him and these claims rocketed him into the upper stratosphere of American celebrity and American civic life. And he became a heroic figure for a brief period of time until it all fell apart.
1: Let's take a couple of steps back. The part of the book that fascinates me, um, you know, right now we're talking about immigrants coming into America. He was born in Australia. But his journey was fascinating. And I can list the countries, but I'd rather have you kind of fill in the blanks. Um, He eventually ended up uh, in Canada and then the U.S. And then came kind of came east. Um, That journey speaks a lot of him because that's where he created who he was. Yes, he was an actor. But based on my take of the book, he was also a gifted journalist. Is that accurate?
2: He was a tremendous writer uh, and a powerful journalist who, at his best, wrote the kind of stories that hit the reader like a punch in the chest, right? He um, he first landed in North America, in Western Canada, and started working in British Columbia uh, in, a, in the city of Victoria, where he was working for a small newspaper up there, and did tremendous work and wrote powerful stories that can still... I think, raise emotion in the reader today about uh, tra- the trafficking of young girls. Right, uh, right. Pro- forced prostitution, trafficking of young immigrant girls. And the stories are horrific, and uh, he made enemies doing it. Um, you know, again, he wrote with a certain, the style of time was more, they sort of read more like columns. I mean, they were full of rage and indignation and things. It, it was very little of the sort of arm's length, tone that we see in a lot of of modern journalism, you know, from there, the problem with rate is that again, in the beginning, he was, you know, particularly crooked, he was a liar, a grifter and an extortionist. And he had this little trick where he used to write a really derogatory story about some prominent person in town, especially someone with money. And then he would bring a draft of the story to them and show them and say, wow, look at this terrible thing I wrote about you. You would hate to see this published in the newspaper, but, For a small fee, I could maybe smooth off some of those rough edges. And for a larger sum, I could just throw it away. So, what would you like to do? Um, You know, again, the magnitude of the sin against journalism for something like that is almost can't be calculated. Um, So, he ended up uh, leaving Canada just ahead of the police that were coming to arrest him for extortion. And he took the ferry over to Washington State and worked in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, And, you know, got in trouble in similar ways, worked his way down to San Francisco and then wrote, I think, uh, beautifully. Uh, He was sent to cover the um, Spanish-American War in Cuba and wrote beautifully about not the battles, but the aftermaths of the battle, which I think was a lot more powerful. It just wasn't it wasn't jingoism. It wasn't reveling in victory. It was this is the price paid by men, by young men. Uh, for this victory, and he, so he wrote about the wounded, and uh, I think he wrote incredibly powerfully. He, again, he he was a lot of trouble for newspapers, but he kept getting more chances in journalism because he could just flat out write. So, okay, if uh, I can, you know. inter,
1: if I can interject something, yeah. because that part you're talking about reporting on the Spanish-American War, it reminded me of Charles Collingwood and people like that reporting. From the scene, World War II, in a sense, he was a precursor to that. Yes, he was a scam artist, but he could write and capture the moment. And if you know anything about World War II, a lot of those correspondents live in London were capturing the moment and bringing it back, not just to America, but worldwide. And that thought just kind of came up when I read that part of the book. He reminds me of the reporters on the front lines, or in London at least, during the blitzkrieg and everything else, reporting the war and getting the information out.
2: Yeah. And, and reporting the war from the war itself. Right. I mean, those guys, those people in London, like they were, they were, uh, running into air raid shelters for, for nightly bombing, just like everyone else. Raytham was there. He went on a troop transport uh, and landed on Cuba. He was there as the troops battled their way, uh, across the Island. Uh, and he was there when when after the Battle of San Juan Hill, wounded men, bloodied men, um, men missing limbs made their way down to the, to the, to the military hospital. So yeah, he was part of that. And I think, uh, part of a, you know, a very long line of distinguished war correspondents. And the, the work he did there was, I think the best work that he did anywhere.
1: Now, you don't understand what it means to work on Deadline. He recovered the Chicago Fire, which I'm told is one of the most horrific fires in the history of this country. And what you say, he ha- he created a masterpiece on Deadline. So take us into the newsroom when you're on Deadline and a reporter and the pressure to get the story out from your experience and his that you write about in the book.
2: Sure. Uh, in Raytham's case, he was uh, pretty still pretty new in Chicago working for the Record Herald. When the Iroquois Theater burned down at the end of 1903 and killed more than 600 people, and it's still the deadliest single building fire in American history. And when you're faced with a an event like that, you know as a reporter, this is something that's going to be in the history books, right? I I did it myself. Uh, just some. Just some average Patriot's day, uh, when, uh, there was some commotion at the Boston marathon and I was in the globe newsroom. I had just filed a story about something else. And I just mentioned to an editor, Hey, if you need any help on whatever this thing is down at the finish line of the marathon, I'm free. And that was how I became the writer that, day, putting together the story about the bombing of the finish line of the Boston marathon for the Boston globe. And it was the. Most important job I've ever had in journalism that day. And I can tell you that when the feeds are coming in from reporters at the scene, at the hospital, all over the place, all over the state, uh, those feeds come in um, uh, and it's your job to figure out how to cohesively put them together and create a narrative that not only says what happens, but captures the emotional power of the day. And I tell you, looking into the screen with no words on it, it's pretty intimidating. Editors are walking around, their eyes are big, and they look frightened and they just need a story to start to edit and the pressure is intense. And that's what Raytham did that day. He His story about the Iroquois theater fire is an absolute masterpiece. And I remember reading it for the first time while I was uh, researching this book. And I felt my chest full of grief for these people that lived long ago in Chicago um, and what they had gone through on that day. And it was just, I think, a testament to his brilliance that he was able to make me and other people feel that way more than 100 years after the event. And And that's what good... Uh, deadline writing
1: can do. I will mention I'd run the Boston Marathon twice, but I did watch it that year on television. And I know what you were going through. And finishers were actually coming in as the bombs exploded, and you saw the visceral reaction. And then a few of the people are annoyed because they weren't allowed to finish. I remember that yeah. they want they ran their 25 miles. They were getting close to finish line at 26.2. And they had to stop, and they were frustrated by that, but had to stop for the right reasons. Part of the subtitle of the book is Propaganda. We live in an age where there are propaganda wars going on daily, internationally, nationally, and even locally. And the one thing that I kind of focused on in the book in terms of propaganda wars, you had two factions. Right now we're talking about the allies in, in the world. There were different factions in, in in terms of keeping America neutral and with different agendas. You had Germany with a spy network in America, and you had the British who have another agenda. And I, I guess in a sense, they were using different media outlets and different newspapers in this battle of agendas. Can you follow up on that and expand on that?
2: Sure. The, the problem facing Germany and Austria-Hungary, its ally at the start of the war, was that – America had a vast number of factories, uh, farms, uh, processing plants, and everyone in Europe could see that the length of the war and how long it might go on may depend on who could get their supplies replenished uh, most consistently and probably from America. So the British had the largest Navy in the world at the time, and they controlled the Atlantic. So the British could import whatever they wanted from the United States, you know, uh, artillery shells especially, uh, rifle rounds, anything. Horses, machine parts, automobiles, that sort of thing. Uh, The Germany, frankly, could not. People here were happy to sell things to Germany. They had money, they would would be happy to sell things to them, but they couldn't get the stuff home for the most part. So Germany's propaganda effort at the beginning of the war was trying to get America to be more neutral. A a weapons embargo would have been fantastic for Germany. Let's persuade America to pass a weapons embargo so no one can sell to the war in powers. Germany wouldn't be able to get any weapons, but they really couldn't get any anyway because of the the British sea embargo around Germany. So it would have hurt the Allies a a lot more. The Brits, on the other hand, really wanted the, to be able to continue to import things from the United States. And they had the this, this thought that if America was someday going to enter the war, they would enter it on the side of Great Britain. And uh, so those were the things that, that uh, so they very much were resistant to an arms embargo. And they were trying to build Germany up as an enemy to or, perhaps persuade America to enter
1: the war. A little bit more about Raytham and the women in his life. Um, I've been following the podcast, The Thing About Pam, I, The Dateline. Actually, I've got one of the defense attorneys coming up in a future episode who was who represented the man who went to prison, accusing was accused of the murder of his wife, which Pam was involved with ultimately. And I want to go back to what I call the Glaze Cherries episode because that is really – they were doing podcasts then this that would have been a perfect podcast what about the glaze cherry episode you want to talk about that
2: sure so ratham married uh, as a young man in his in his 20s to a canadian woman uh by the name of mary crockford and uh, she became mary ratham and moved with him wherever he went as he went from left canada with the united states and then eventually ended up in san francisco uh, unfortunately, Ratham, while on vacation without his wife, um, met a very attractive young West Virginian by the name of Florence Campbell and, uh, met her at a hotel where Florence had just given a speech, um, about the sort of the women's liberation movement of the day. So she was a very, uh, modern thinking woman in the late 19th century. Uh, they became friends. And in fact, uh, Ratham said, why don't you move back to San Francisco and I'll try to help you get some work in the newspaper business. And, uh, and he did. And he helped her and he coached her. And Florence and Mary became very close friends. And they traded letters. Uh, and um, it, seemed to be, it seemed to be a nice situation for everybody until Florence and Ratham began to have an affair. After a while, Ratham moved out on his wife and shacked up with Florence. They pretended to be be married. They weren't. They never never were. Uh, In the beginning, Mary Ratham was understandable, was understanding about it. She just wanted her husband back. Um, But as time passed, she got angrier about it, and she finally threatened to uh, file for divorce and name Florence, as Ratham lover, as a correspondent, which without her, uh, for having an affair with a married man. Again, this is the late 1890s. This was you know, not something you wanted to be outed for. So, shortly after that, Florence, the lover, got delivered at her home a beautiful wicker basket full of candied cherries. And she ate some. that came through the mail. And uh, she, she had some with for her landlord. And they didn't know who it was from, although the address on the packaging was definitely in Mary Brayton's handwriting. Oddly, though, it seemed that the address had been cut from an old envelope and then pasted on the package. Well, Florence and her landlady became really ill that night. The cherries were tested and uh, tested positive, according to the chemists, for enough arsenic to kill a herd of cops. So the candies had been poisoned, Right. sent to Florence through the mail. And uh, Suspicion landed on Ratham. They landed on on his wife, Mary Ratham. I tell you, this episode became a national story. The New York Times wrote stories and published stories about the Candied Cherry episode between the newsman, his wife and his lover in San Francisco. It was a huge story. It was really the first time that Ratham's name was widely seen in newspapers across the country. Uh, The police investigated, they tracked the basket and the poison back to the places they were bought. They talked to the clerks, they got a description. They called Florence in for a little bit more questioning and the clerks from those stores were at the police department waiting for her and they ID'd her as the perp and under questioning she cracked and admitted that she had sent the poison cherries to herself to try to get something on Mary Ratham so she could frighten her out of naming Florence in her divorce case. Uh, oddly enough, despite all the attention, national attention that was put on this case, Florence was never prosecuted. Right. Because the district attorney looked at this and said, well, it's really not illegal to mail arsenic to yourself. So she ended up getting away. Uh, Ratham's wife went back to Canada by herself. And Ratham and Florence moved immediately out of San Francisco. They went to Chicago next, uh, where they again started over. They remade themselves again uh, as husband and wife, even though they were never never married. And she lived as Mrs. Mary Ratham. Uh, until her death in her 80s. So, in fact, um, she and Reiton never
1: married. So let's reset. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Mark Arsenault from the Boston Globe. His book is called The Imposter's War. Now, um, Craig Unger has been a guest on this podcast. I also interviewed him for my television program going way back in time. His latest book is called Compromot. Now, this shows up in your story, Um, I don't know if they ever used that title back then because it comes out of Russia and everything else, but they were very effective in using it. But also I guess people connected to FDR were very effective in a sense to silence John Ratham. Is that accurate? Yeah.
2: Yeah, This is how John Ratham's reputation was destroyed. And the reason why uh, historians and the writers of history essentially left him Um, off. Ratham, uh, and FDR got into a bit of a scrap when FDR was Assistant Secretary of the Navy in the early 1920s. Uh, at that time, the Navy had a major scandal when they tried to start a sting operation to um, out gay sailors. Uh, it was a complete disaster, and, um, and in fact, it ended up outing uh People in the community, civilians in the community, and uh, one uh, pretty well-known minister in Providence was tried for um, essentially lewd behavior. His trial was a um, uh, in Providence was a was a disaster for the Navy. It kind of showed how they were using a, using a sting operation to entrap men. Reflected really poorly on them, and Reagan was outraged by it. So he attacked the F- regularly in the newspaper. Uh, at some point around this time, the Attorney General of the United States, a guy named uh, Thomas Watt Gregory, decided that they had just had enough of Raytham. Even though that the FBI and the Department of Justice had shared a lot of information with him prior to and during the war, at this point, they just wanted him to shut up. He was getting too big to control. So they, they saw that he'd been telling lies in the lecture circuit And they used it against him. Um, And by threatening him with a grand jury, they got Ratham to sign a confession saying that all these things that he had said on the lecture trail were, in fact, not true. The Attorney General of the United States blackmailed a journalist, the most famous journalist in the country, into signing away his right to speak freely. And again, Ratham brought a lot of this on himself. He hadn't told those lies and they wouldn't have had anything on him, but he did. And they used it. Um, so the attorney general sat on this document for a while, um, saying he would keep it secret as long as Ratham behaved himself. When Ratham started to trash FDR, uh, who was a Democrat and on the, on the national ticket as a vice presidential nominee in 1920, then the, uh, the Wilson administration decided it was time to destroy John Ratham and they released that document to the public, uh, and, all of John Raytham's lies that he told were suddenly, in his own words, exposed, and uh, it was ruinous to his reputation. Um, people who were celebrating his journalism just a few years before thought that they had been duped. It was not necessarily the case. His journalism certainly wouldn't pass modern standards for accuracy and, you know, uh, care of facts, but. I mean, he had real sources and produced real stories, many of which I was able to verify uh, even a hundred years later in the book. So uh, it's not entirely fair that Ratham was, that his reputation was completely ruined like that. he did tell lies in the lecture circuit. His journalism did have some validity to it. However, you know, people, this country, we, we used to punish public liars pretty severely. And uh, we did back then. and. Um, he, his uh, reputation was destroyed. He died not that long after that. In fact, three years later.
1: So we always end every segment with what I call "What did I miss? What did I get wrong?" So in the time frame we have left, a couple minutes left, what did I miss? What did I get wrong?
2: Sure, I don't think you got anything wrong. Um, I think the the part about the story that I I think people I really would want people to know about is the way that he was able to remake himself so many times. And I think that it's kind of hard writing about somebody who's not purely a heroic character, right? Um, It's easy if he is, uh, but someone who's more complicated and has a darker side, uh, who was in some sense a criminal... Uh, it is more difficult, but I think when Braitham dedicated himself to getting the United States in the war and, and opposing the German empire, something changed in him. It's almost like something got mended or fixed in him. And he dedicated himself to that and produced some really powerful journalism. Um, so I think... I think that the fact that he was able to remake himself after falling so many times, uh, I think there's, there is something mildly heroic about that, even though within the balance of his life, you might think that he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily always a good man. He sort of put the equal amounts in the basket, on the scales of justice, and the baskets of good and evil, he put an equal amount into each. And he sort of figured as long as the scales were roughly imbalanced,
1: right. he could live with that. My guest has been Mark Arsenault. The book is called The Imposter's War, The Press, Propaganda and the Newsmen Who Battled for the Minds of America. Mark, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. After the break from Newsday, investigative journalist S.J. Petty comes and joins us talking about Sonny, a major crime fiction uh, figure here on Long Island. I'm Larry Davidson and this is the podcast Awful Periscope. We'll be right back.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. S.J. Petty is an investigative reporter at Newsday Media Group and has won more than 50 awards for her work. She joins us to discuss Sunny, the last of the old-time mafia bosses, John, Sonny, Francis, and Sandra Petty. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you, Larry.
1: I I love the book, and I'll tell you why in a a very selfish and parochial way, uh, this podcast comes out of Long Island. I spent the bulk of my life living and working on Long Island, so a lot of the people in your book, Sonny, and a lot of the settings, I know who they were. I know where the places are. So for me, that really works really well. So my first question to you is for people outside of the metropolitan area, will this book also resonate because they're not familiar with the territory?
3: Well, you know, I thought a lot about that. And the fact is, yes, they will. Sonny was bigger than Long Island. He was bigger than New York. He, you know, he cut a swath through the New York City nightclub scene. Right. He had affairs with celebrities He was involved in, he was the producer of Deep Throat. He was involved in the pop music industry. So he left a much bigger imprint than his imprint on Long Island. So yes, I do think there's interest beyond our shores.
1: So one of my takeaways from the book, and I have many, so bear with me if you don't mind. It's a story about two families, Sonny's Mafia family, And I don't want to say Sonny's nuclear family because he had a lot of women in his life and a lot of children from various uh, marriages and relationships. But the intersection of both families fascinated me and how they navigated that.
3: I love that you put it that way. That's the best way I've ever heard it described. And it was... um... You know, mob books are typically not about families and they're not they don't include women. Most mob books are very, very male. Lots of testosterone. Right. So this was uh, there was some resistance, but I felt very, very strongly that this is a bigger story about family, because, in fact, Sonny was a very strong, tough guy who never ratted. And his one weakness, as far as I can tell, was his family, not his mafia family. But his, as you say, nuclear
1: family and we'll we'll delve into that, especially with some of his sons that ultimately gave him up and got involved with wearing wires and and the FBI investigations. So let's talk a little bit about you, your background, and I'll make it a two part question, if you don't mind. What brought you to Newsday and what brought Sonny to the world of crime?
3: Well, I grew up in Minnesota and I went to college in Massachusetts, but I went back to Minnesota to work and I met my husband who's from Long Island and he decided to go to graduate school in New York. So we moved here and that's what brought me to New York. It wasn't a glamorous reason, but I had the opportunity to uh, work at Newsday, which was great. You had to try out for your job. You had to work for a week. And I think the year that I tried out, uh, 2000 people applied. So it was tough. But it was a great experience. And then if you had had asked me 20 years ago, would you write a biography of a mobster? I would have said no, absolutely not. These are horrible people. I don't want to glamorize them. And in fact, I had the opportunity about 15 years ago and I passed. But Sonny was different and The way the story came about really was I was interviewing his stepson, Michael Francis, for another story. and At the end of the interview, he he mentioned that his father was getting out of prison at age 100 and he was the oldest inmate in the federal system. And that's what sparked it. That's what led me on this quest to talk to Sonny and then to more than 100 of his friends, family members and enemies to flesh out the story.
1: So why did Sonny talk to you? I mean, Omerta, he never gave a, uh, anybody up, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong. But no, you, you, sat, you sat down with him. First of all, he's was about 100 years old, so you always questioned the mental faculties of anybody that gets beyond baby boom age. That—that <laughs> that, I, I have a feeling from reading this book that you kind of admired him based, on, so... and based on his life.
3: That's so interesting. Um I admired his zest for life. And he was absolutely lucid. There was no confusion about Sonny. He was smart and he was a great storyteller. The one time he acted confused when it was when I literally asked him about America. He said, oh, what's that? What's that? You know, he was faking it. So I did admire the fact that this man who had been through so much still exuded this incredible optimism about life. but. I don't admire Sonny and what he did with his life. And I I think the reason he's an important story was, number one, he embodied the rise of the mafia in this country in the 60s, 70s. But also, he's a cut above your typical mob guy because he could pass in civilian society. He could have been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company if he wanted to. And that's what makes him so terrifying to me is that he could pass.
1: That is so interesting that you said that because I was thinking about that a lot. You know, there's there's a saying, there's a thin line between cops and criminals. And you just kind of said that. But I wonder in an alternative universe that he would have been a major force in corporate America legitimately based on his skills. He had a lot of skills. He could read people. He was organized. He definitely understood the flow of money and an alternative universe. I wonder what his life would have been. I mean, it's conjecture, but I thought about that a lot.
3: I I think that's very true. And I, I, I know I said this in the introduction, but I really felt this way. He was the kind of guy you would invite to a backyard barbecue until you realized you didn't want to have him anywhere close to anyone you loved or anything you loved. And I was talking about his financial skills with a friend of mine who's the CFO of an insurance company. And right. I was talking one day about the, the transcripts of tapes of his, that his son had with him when he was older. And I said to her, I said, you know, these are horrible people. All they ever do is talk about money, who has it, how they're entitled to that person's money, because basically they let that person breathe, and then how they're going to relieve that person of their money. And she said, you know, it's not that much different in the corporate world. And so, yeah, I, I think he could have done it legitimately. He was also, and, and this is something that set him apart, he was a supremely self disciplined. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't eat to excess. Uh, and it, that was a, a, all very purposeful because he was focused on business always.
1: So I took this from the book, and the question is, did he open the floodgates for organized crime in the suburbs, especially Nassau and Suffolk County, as well as New York City? Let me mention a few of the things that he was involved with and his crew was involved with, and correct me if I misstate this. loan sharking, labor unions, construction, carting, even barbers. Yes. That's a lengthy yes. list, but the barbers one really captured my attention. <laughs> Small potatoes, but he's getting involved with kind of putting the hand on, the fist on. Barbers. What was that all about?
3: Well, he decided to uh, to create a sham barbers union and it involved raising the price of a haircut that they all charged. They'd all have to charge the same price and kick a kickback a piece of it to the mafia, but it was a sham union. They weren't going to get any rights right. or any benefits. And they were trying to force uh, one barber to sign up and threaten to cut off his hands if he did. So it was it was rough trade for sure.
1: Let me share a personal story that my club, well, not close, a connection to a little bit of um, the carding business. I was working in a sports medicine medicine facility years ago in Hopog, and it was also the place where all guys came to load up their trucks that went out to them, various job sites. A lot of money flowed through there. But also, Carmine Avelino worked there, uh-huh. Salvatore's uh-huh. brother. And, of course, yeah. I mentioned the Avellinos because of Carding and Cubeca and Barstow murders. I don't know if you had Newsday at that time frame. Because yeah. in this yeah. facility, in this training facility, sports medicine facility, facility located in Hop Park, we had judges come in to work out. Pat Halpin used to come in there too, by the way. And mm-hmm. lawyers, we had BSO cops in there from Nassau County. We had the carding guys. And I do remember uh, when Carmine used to walk in, and guys from construction, the Raconelli family, by the way. And when uh, Carmine used to walk in, the carding guys, the rough-looking carding guys would come up and kiss him on the cheek. And I'm standing there, and I'm just taking this all in because it was an amazing place to witness slices of America. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And that's Long Island. People look, as I said, I grew up in Minnesota. I had never even heard of the mafia until I moved to Long Island. And I start out covering local government and I see these wokes on the fringes of local government and I'm thinking, what the heck are they doing around government? Well, they were smart. You know, they guaranteed money with paving contracts, carding contracts, and all sorts of other contracts.
1: So tell us a little bit about, you know, all of us think about John Gotti, right? And his daily routine, and he walked down the street, and he was as well-dressed as Sonny was, by the way. Sonny was very well-dressed, meticulous in everyday life, and even going to the various trials that he had. But I'm curious about his life in general, his daily life Outside of the house because we can talk about Tina and Tina was tough, tough on the kids and tough. She was the one that cared about money. He necessarily, he he didn't, he wasn't flashy about his money because he was very disciplined, as you said. But his daily routine, give us some insights about everyday life with Sonny on the streets. And if you want to talk about at home too.
3: Well, one of the extraordinary things about Sonny, we know about his daily routine because the FBI and the cops were following him every day and they made a show of following him. I, I shouldn't say every minute of every day. but. They did make a show of following him. So we know from a story that uh, the late Bob Green did, the two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter at Newsday, he did a story called The Hood in Our Neighborhood, right. where he literally described his daily routine, where he was you know, dressed like an IBM executive with a crew cut, and he'd, he'd kiss his wife goodbye about 10.30 in the morning, and then a driver would take him into the city, and he would make his rounds of his various accounts. He would never use the same payphone twice. He would talk to guys on the street. He was very, very careful at home. I know from Michael Francis that when he had a conversation that he was nervous about, he would go into the bathroom and run the water so they could have the conversation there so he could drown out any kind of uh, bugs that were in his home. And in fact, the FBI did bug his home illegally in the early 1960s so they could listen in on conversations. So we have a lot of information about what he was doing day to day. So he would go into the city, stop at his various accounts, and then he might go over to the Brill Building to, uh, he loved pop music and he had a great ear, uh, really a great ear. And he loved Bobby Darin's voice. He thought he was a better singer than Frank Sinatra. And of course, Bobby Darin was with him because the Genovese um, associate, Mo Levy, had given Sonny Bobby Darin. So he would hang out at the Brill Building or at some of the other clubs and come back late at night. But he was really, at the same time, a great father. On Sundays, you know, he would take the kids for ice cream. He would show up at every Little League game. And when he went to a Little League game, he would literally walk right back to the dugout and sit in the dugout. The only thing that he did that was that um, one of his friends thought was a little off in terms of the way he dressed for those games is he would wear shorts with black socks. <laughs> it's an ungainly uh, look, which really, I-, I guess it was. But nobody cared. And everybody knew who Sonny was and he knew who-
1: that they knew who he was. It sounds like the Steve Martin movie. He goes into WITSEC and he's very involved in sports and everything else. And that just came to mind. I want to go back to the Brill meeting because he was very involved with the music business. And he had a meeting there um, with – because he had his talent agency and he was involved with Sam Cooke and Johnny Nash and the Supremes. But he also had a meeting that was also with – Al Sharpton was there. You know, Al Sharpton right now has reinvented himself these days. He's got his own TV program on MSNBC. And every time there's something involved with racial justice, uh, he shows up. But it was Sonny, John Jr., Jules Rufkin, Rufkin, Al Sharpton, Sharpton, and Tommy Motella, who also got – well, so at one point was married to Mariah Carey. That meeting fascinates me, the intersection about crime, the music business. We know about that. We know about a lot of the black entertainers involved with chess records got screwed out of the royalties to this day. But that brings a lot of worlds together in one building. And you want to talk, you want to amplify on that? Because that really said in my mind, there's a lot going on behind the scenes we never knew about.
3: Well, you're absolutely right. And again, you make an excellent point, because that scene, which was uh, described to me by John Francis Jr., who was there, was you know basically a shakedown effort of Tommy Matola Mottola, when, and Sharpton was involved in it. But I, I think the other thing that was sort of interesting about Sonny, who was a bad guy, he was accused and believed to have murdered 40 to 50 guys, and he bragged about murder in a very obscene way, but yet he had a soft spot for the underdog and he helped a lot of black artists. Yes. And he, he truly loved music. And so, but for a guy like Sonny Francis, a lot of these guys would not have been able to break into the music industry. So you're right. It's this fascinating intersection. And is it a bad thing that Sonny helped them? No, but did he do bad things? Yeah.
1: So another intersection around the world of entertainment um, I would call it dueling nightclubs. So on one hand, you have the Cobra Cabana, right? And an actor later showed up in The Godfather, was involved in, in their working as a young man. And then you had, and you had, for the first time ever, there were black entertainers there. They could never get in before. And then you have Jilly's, which where Frank Sinatra was. And right. once again, I call that the world of dueling nightclubs in terms of entertainment. Because the movie, the God uh, Goodfellas, a lot of it happens in the Copa, and they get their special tables, and they get to the front, and of course, nobody ever pays, which is another thing that Sonny never, never did. He never paid for anything, even though he had a lot of money. So that that also fascinates me about the world of entertainment and. The difference between who goes to the Copa, Copa Cabana, and Jules Pardell's, I believe, was the front man for that, and Jilly's because that's where Frank Sinatra hung out. And I had the honor of multiple times talking to Pete Hamill, the great journalist uh-huh. Pete Hamill. And Pete Hamill said – well, he wrote the book, called Why Sinatra Matters. And he said, one night I'm at home just probably reading and relaxing, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, wherever it was, uh, Sinatra calls him up and says, Pete, come hang out with me. So there were a lot of people and the news people involved with this because they, they had their sources and everything else, but just the competition between the clubs also gives us a little bit of insight to that, that world of organized crime entertainment and also journalists.
3: Well, you know, that's a, a, another interesting observation. At, at one point I asked Sonny, I said, did you know Frank Sinatra? And he said, you asked the question the wrong way. Wow. The question should have been, did Frank Sinatra know Sonny Francis? <laughs> I like that. Because they were always jousting for supremacy. And, uh, and you know, Sonny was right, because when he got to know Frank Sinatra, he was bigger than Frank Sinatra. And his he said his friends would complain that Sinatra was arrogant and he, he got too big for his britches. And, and Sonny said, well, what what'd you think? We made him. So it is, it's, it's a fascinating world. And the other thing about this world that, um, I can't pretend to understand very well, but there's a lot of chest thumping and a lot of testosterone. And you, you talked about how cops and criminals can sometimes be the same and they are very different, but there is a lot of yelling. You know, when I talk to cop sources, when I talk to some of these street guys, it's all at the same decibel, very loud Mm. And they're telling me what to do. And they're know-it-alls. <laughs> you know, they know about everything, even if they have no experience about anything. So it's an, it's an interesting world. And yet, look, you know, they did some amazing things.
1: So his, his heyday, I guess, in terms of the power that he had and the reputation when he walked into a room, he was the man. Right. There was no doubt right. about that. So, we're talking about 1960s was the peak of his powers. But around 1966, an avalanche of indictments came down. And I want you to talk about that because they came down and they came down and they came down. In a sense, his arch enemy was one Judge Jacob Mishler, who later on, there was a little bit of detente there at the end of his life, which is fascinating. But let's kind of explore that. What got him in trouble? And what kind of trials did he have to be participate in as a, a defendant?
3: Well, it, you know, in his early years, as Sonny was rising up the ranks of the Colombo crime family, which used to be called the Profaci crime family, he was charged with all sorts of crimes, assault and, you know, loitering and rape and all sorts of things. But he shook off all the charges, either with a well-placed bribe or with uh, a a quiet threat, but he, there were probably a couple dozen charges I can remember that he shook off. And so, in the '60s, one that he believes we know that J. Edgar Hoover made Sonny a priority after Appalachia, where they mm-hmm. found all the mobsters you yeah. know, scrambling out the back of, of the house, running into when, the
1: running into the woods to get away.
3: In their expensive shoes. And and, uh, Hoover had up till that point denied there was even a mafia. And so Robert Kennedy became attorney general and he wanted a crackdown on organized crime. He insisted on that. Now, Sonny believes it's because he was targeted because he had an affair with Marilyn Monroe, who, of course, had her own relationship with Robert Kennedy. That's what Sonny believed. Right. In in any case, uh, he was also very, very public. Unlike other mobsters, he never covered his face when a camera was in his face. And so he was very much a celebrity in his own right. So in 1966, in a single year, he was indicted by four different law enforcement agencies. I've never seen this in my life, and I've sadly read a lot of court records in my life. So he was indicted by the Manhattan DA for bookmaking, the U.S. Attorney for bank robbery conspiracy, the Queens DA for homicide for the killing of Ernie the Hawk, the one-eyed hit man, and finally he was indicted by the nasa district attorney for a home invasion this is and he as as always thought he could shake it off he thought he could beat all the cases and in fact he did beat in his view three of the cases the one case that he could not, was the one presided over by Judge Jacob Mishler. And that was the bank robbery conspiracy. And he was convicted of that one. And Judge Mishler sentenced him to 50 years in prison. And the day he was sentenced, he looked at the judge and he said, you watch, I'll do the whole
1: bid. Uh, My my name is Larry Davidson. This is the podcast off of Periscope. My guest is Sandra Petty from Newsday. Her book is called Sunny. Uh, This is tangential, but you kind of referenced it. Uh, Jimmy Breslin wrote a book called "The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight," and the Cordero crew went to Denver to do this robbery, and that <laughs> and that epitomizes the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Right. Um, uh, is, right. Is that accurate?
3: Absolutely. You know, they were on this bank robbery spree, and they just de- they it got too hot for them in New York, so they decided they had to go out of town, and they picked Denver because the U.S. Mint was there. And they were supposed to fly out on a Thursday because they were going to rob the bank on Friday, but they overslept, so they flew out later that day or Friday. In any case, they couldn't rob the bank until Saturday, and they didn't understand that the bank didn't have any money on a Saturday, so... It was they were truly the keystone cops of uh, bank robbers. They they couldn't pull it off.
1: So the tragedy is going back to almost the beginning of our conversation was various children that he had. Well, I want to mention three names. John Jr.,
2: mm-hmm. Michael mm-hmm.
1: and Gia. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. in the, in a sense, although mm-hmm. Michael kind of changed, turned his life around, um, had major trauma in their lives.
3: Yes, absolutely. And Michael, uh, he is Sonny's stepson. Sonny adopted him later so that he could be made in the Colombo crime family. And he was, he was, um, very deeply involved in the Long Island gas scam, where they literally stole millions in tax money, and he was indicted for uh, and convicted of extortion and racketeering and loan sharking, and was sentenced to prison for ten years. And he decided to cooperate. Now, Michael, he he was married at the time. He left his first wife and married um, his second wife and moved to California, but. He has minimized the level of cooperation. Um, he says, well, I only testified against one guy, and he what, Norby Walters, and he wasn't a mob guy, so it doesn't really count. Well, he counted to Norby Walters. Trust me, I've talked to Norby. But he did more than that. He gave information about a lot of guys all over the country, and it really hurt Sonny on the street because Sonny never ratted anyone out, and the FBI repeatedly tried to get Sonny to turn.
1: So um, can I can, the, inter, can I interject one thing? Once again, the reference point is the Godfather. There was something It was a saying in the book when Sonny dies, Michael dies. And I thought exactly, about the Godfather. E-
3: exactly. And um, I can tell you this. I spoke. Sonny died in February of 2020 at the age of 103. And I spoke to um, both John and Michael right after he died. And, and John was kind of philosophical about it. Michael was devastated. And Michael, who was a very poised, articulate, smooth guy, he was uh, a basket case. And I can also tell you that when Michael, I saw Michael come to Long Island to uh, speak at a church in Santa Marichas, because he gets paid to do these speaking engagements. And he was scared. He was nervous about being on Long Island. So, Uh, He knows, you know, he's careful, but he doesn't like coming back to Long Island. And he told me his wife was very upset with him for coming back. In the case of John Jr., John Jr. was the favorite child. He was the first child of Sonny and Tina. He's a lot like his father. He's smart. He's funny. He's a great storyteller. And He got involved with drugs and he became addicted to crack cocaine. And he had this horrific life on the street for years. He contracted HIV and he still went on drugging. And then finally he moved to California to see Michael and something clicked and he got sober, but he also decided to, and prior to that he had been an informant against other people. But at that point, um, Rob Lewicki, a former FBI agent who grew up in New High Park, just a town away from the Francis family, he made what uh, a cold call. FBI agents make these cold calls all the time. And he called him up. And for some reason, John picked up and John decided to wear a wire against his own father. And he says now that it wasn't against him, it was against the life. He was angry because he had been trying to develop a TV show in California and all the guys back in New York were trying to get a piece of it. And John was like, no, this is my thing. You don't get a piece of this. But he ultimately wore a wire against his father, who was in his 80s at the time. And Sonny was still working because he was trying to get John set up in the life. He had proposed John as a good fellow, which is a source of great pride to John to this day. And John ultimately testified against his father and entered and his father was convicted at the age of 93 and sentenced to another eight years. And John uh, entered the witness protection program, which was started because of Sonny Francis. So there's a real sad um,
1: irony there. So before we end, I want to put on no pun intended, a button on this (laughs) that as, as his life was ending, what was Sonny's reflections especially about his place in heaven and or hell?
3: Well, he seemed to think he was going straight to hell. He said he would meet Judge Mishler. And he said of Judge Mishler, he said, I'll meet him in hell. And he didn't evince any kind of fear of that. He was aware that he had a legacy in crime. Right. But he felt real regrets about what his time away in prison did to his family. And he talked a lot about that. And what was very striking was he never told his family. They didn't know that until I told them. So uh, he wanted his story out. He wanted people to know about his regrets. But he did not regret being a bad guy. He was an unabashed bad guy Mm -hmm. and proud of what he accomplished in the mob.
1: So, Sandra Petty, before we go, we always end this segment with – what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So you can roll with that if you like.
3: You didn't miss anything. And I can't think of anything you got wrong, but I would hope that people read the book because as you say, your opening point, it's more than a story about a famous mobster. It's a story about two families, his mob family and his life with Tina and the children and Tina Francis, by the way, was not a typical mob wife. She could go toe to toe with Sonny, and she was beautiful, elegant, exquisite taste, and an interesting character in her own right.
1: Sandra, thank you so much. I want to thank two really talented journalists from the Boston Globe, Mark Arsenault, about his book called The Impostor's War, and from a hometown newspaper still doing a great job with reporting, investigative reporting. Sandra Petty, her new book is called Sonny. Sandra, thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Larry. This was fun. I appreciate
1: it. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cricifaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at Productions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.